0: Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Christopher Wolfe, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of St. Thomas, giving a paper entitled, George Washington, A Key to the Integralism Debate. Well, it, it's, it's just a delight to be with all of you here, uh, with friends and uh, fellow professors who I've already learned so much. Just I've only been here a year, uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed teaching here with, with you all and also being part of these philosophy colloquia. Um, and I'm sorry if I might be a little bit sluggish uh, in my lecture today because I actually got off of a what they call a red eye flight this morning and has anybody done a red eye before a red eye is where you're in California and you fly east and you get on the plane about I don't know, 11 p.m midnight and then you just wake up the next morning on where at your destination and you got red eyes but you're it's the next day, so uh, that's what I did. But I did that for a good reason, because um, I was in California this morning uh, t- in order to go to a memorial for uh, my friend and mentor in graduate school, a guy named Mike Yulman. And Yuleman, uh, he taught me actually everything I know about George Washington and everything I know about the First Amendment and church-state relations, so this is pretty much what I've learned from him. Um, and I also uh, j- just want to just dedicate this to, to Mike. He was a real uh, Catholic gentleman. He really was. Um, and so one story that comes to mind involving Mike I wanted to share with you. Uh, one time I jokingly said to him, hey Mike, you know, you shouldn't talk about religion and politics in mixed company. Has anybody heard that phrase before? Maybe that's a southern phrase. I don't know. You shouldn't talk about religion or politics in mixed company. I said that to Mike, and he said, so we're not supposed to talk about religion and politics? What the hell else interesting is there to talk about then? Uh, And that was uh, a good reaction, actually, and uh, illustrates an important insight, I think, that if we bracket off or kind of intentionally avoid talking about ultimate questions always, then we're, we're left with kind of a shallow kind of talk quite often just about the weather or food or whatever it is. Um, and so we should, we should go there, including even, especially when you're not in a mixed company. I mean, we're going to be having Thanksgiving coming up, and It's become the case now where you don't talk about religion and politics with your family at Thanksgiving. Uh, And, I don't know, that might be just a challenge that we might might all have, is to maybe talk about something about politics or religion at Thanksgiving uh, coming up. But, of course, speak the truth in charity, as uh, John Paul II says. Okay, so beyond that custom of Americans like myself, uh, wanting to avoid uncomfortable or quarrelsome topics. Uh, Some Americans are motivated to abstain from talking about religion in mixed company or in the public square out of an imagined constitutional duty not to do so. They read the First Amendment to the Constitution which you can find in your handout. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They read that First Amendment, and they think that it requires secularism in the public square. But you don't actually find the word secularism in that definition, or or, or in that First Amendment, do you? Um, It just says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What did those words originally mean? How has the Establishment Clause ordered our institutional arrangements in the United States? Now that is a long and fascinating story. But I can't go through all that today. Uh, But in short, those words were originally interpreted Allowing government to, to actually support religion as long as that support did not favor one religion over another, one denomination over another. Now, that's the way it was interpreted for many years. However, starting in the 20th century, um, mid-20th century, uh, in the hands of Uh, The Supreme Court, the Establishment Clause has been interpreted to demand a strict separation of church and state. And that's led to a disallowing of all public affirmation of religion, especially funding, money, especially Bible teaching in schools. Um, That's the way the Supreme Court has gone for about 40 or 50 years or went for about 40 or 50 years. In the most recent term of the Supreme Court, in the American Legion versus American Humanist Association case, the liberals on the court argued that a cross set up as a monument for for World War I dead must be taken down because to allow it to stand would create a symbolic establishment of religion. Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor, however, were, the, were on the losing side of that case uh, with actually seven to two against them. And that vote I think is indicative of perhaps a turn back toward a not so strict separation of church and state. Back to what I would call the non-preferential support view that was held for many, many years. Um, and I think it, that the court has turned that direction more as it's grown more originalist. Um, prediction: If you want my professional opinion, uh, I don't think the court's lead case on the subject, Lemon versus Kurtzman, has long, to, long for this world. Uh, Justice Gorsuch during the oral arguments, if you listen to him, he called he called the Lemon test a dog's breakfast in the oral arguments. And I think that's a British saying for a mess, basically. <laughs> the, the test is a mess. And no one really disagreed with him uh, when he said that. However, the there were not enough justices who could come to agreement on what the replacement test ought to be. And so that's why technically we still have the lemon test. Um, still there, but. Honored in the breach, you might say. Um, so that's kind of where the, the, the law is right now. I think that the originalists, um, or, or that the court is becoming more non-preferentialist as it becomes more originalist, um, because the, we've gotten more historical information on what the words originally meant. And there was historical confusion about what they meant in the initial interpretation of these clauses in the mid 20th century. (coughs) This is interesting because I think that the liberal side in these cases, for example the ACLU in all these cases, is not guilty of living constitutionalism at all on this. They are being originalists and Hugo Black, who initially set us on this course, was attempting to interpret the words in terms of what the words originally meant. But I just don't think that, that their history was correct. And we've, we found out more history to show that they're incorrect. Um, for example, Justice Hugo Black in the, the key case, Everson versus Board of Education, uh, 1947, claimed to be following The original intent shown by Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson you can read in your um, handout here in his famous letter to the Danbury Baptist congregation, I messed up the date, it's 1803, um, said quote, so writing to this Baptist congregation he says, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So we got the First Amendment. Let me tell you what it means. It means a high wall of separation of church and state. And that's what Hugo Black puts into his opinion after that. Um, and so, so yeah, there's there's some... There's some historical evidence for that side. Um, The question that ought to have been put to Justice Black back then, and that we ought to put to it now is whether Thomas Jefferson is a reliable source for telling us about the original intent of that clause. The answer is a definite no, for many reasons. But first of all, Jefferson was not present at the time of the drafting of the amendment, he was in France. I messed up the date, but it's 1803 um, is when he says that, you know, that's 14 years after the amendment was written and he wasn't even there. So we ought to look at the people who were there and see what they said about what they thought the amendment meant. And what you come up with, I think, is actually the non-preferentialist view that it doesn't mean a high wall of separation of church and state. There's a very good book by a guy named Philip Hamburger where he shows that actually Jefferson was the only one at that time who used that exact language about the wall of separation in church and state. Extremely thorough book, Philip Hamburger. Okay, so a much more typical view among the drafters of it, of how the First Amendment was to be interpreted you can find with George Washington. Washington believed the amendment meant Congress could not create a Church of America. So, so he reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. He sees the establishment of religion as setting up a church of the United States, like they have a Church of England. So it's saying you can't set up a church of the United States or give money to one church effectively creating one church established achieving the same thing and so but he was okay with not not preferential support to give you some examples of his views on church state it's interesting we can take it back to even when he was general of the continental army one of his first acts or when he's first becomes uh, general of the Continental Army is to disband Guy Fawkes Day celebrations. So Guy's Fawkes Day, why did he do that? Because he thought it was alienating the Catholics in the army. Because this was a British holiday celebrating uh, the foiled plot to explode parliament by basically a Catholic terrorist. Uh, <laughs> and so the Washington disbands Guy Fawkes Day celebrations. Freedom fighter. Freedom fighter. Yeah, terrorists, (laughs) what have you. Um, Second example, I'm just going off, off script here a little bit. Washington insisted that there be army chaplains from not just one denomination, but whatever denominations the soldiers were from. And he insisted that money be paid from tax dollars to go to them. So that's exactly the situation of non-preferential support. Um, you might say, if you're a strict separationist, ah, oh, that's, that's a violation of the strict separation. Well, he didn't believe in that. Um, when he becomes president, he, he gets letters from various denominations and writes these wonderful letters back to all sorts of different religions Catholics Protestants of all types and then actually what I find the most touching is, is his letter to the Hebrew congregation um, in uh, Newport I believe um, but he writes these to many different congregations and says you're welcome here and uh, I appreciate what your citizens have done for the country. Um, And so the famous line from that is, he hopes to see a time when the sons of Abraham, Christian and Jew, everyone shall be sitting in safety under his own vine and fig tree. It's a quote from Micah. And actually Washington uses that quote multiple I think like seven or eight different times. It's just, it's almost this famous Bible quote. But he, he, he it seems very fitting when he uses it when talking to the, the Jewish Hebrew congregation, a religion that had been just persecuted for hundreds of years, you know. And uh, it's it's kind of a touching letter. One exception with these letters. One religion he's not quite okay with. And that's the Quakers. <laughs> and you might say, the Quakers, they're so peaceful and everything. A little bit too peaceful. They didn't serve in the military. And he had a problem with that. Um, and so he has an interesting letter. I'll, I'll, just, I'll read you uh, the last couple lines from it. He says, while men perform their social duties faithfully, they do all that society and the state can with propriety demand or expect. Yeah and remain responsible only to their maker for the religion or modes of faith which they may prefer or profess. Your principles, Quakers, and conduct are well known to me. And it is doing the people called Quakers no more than justice to say that, except their declining to share with others the burden of common defense, there is no denomination among us who are more exemplary and useful citizens. I assure you very explicitly that in my opinion, the conscientious scruples of all men should be treated with great delicacy and tenderness. And it is my wish and desire that the laws may always be as extensively accommodated to them as they do regard to the protection and essential interests of the nation May justify and permit um, but it's almost as if he's saying in there there's no guarantees no guarantees that if you don't put in for the protection of rights that that we would with as much force uh, uh, defend you it's it's that and so I would see this almost as a curtailment of if we were to Think about Washington's view of the free exercise clause. There's might be some limits to free exercise accommodation. He, Washington might have seen that, but on establishment, he's pretty much uh, very, very friendly to religion, um, as long as it's non-preferential. So that's that's kind of. Um, uh, I a taste of what Washington says about this, go read his Thanksgiving proclamations. It's, it's a perfect time to be doing that. Uh, and uh, it's it's clearly a support for religion in a generic kind of way. And then of course his, his most famous statement on this is his farewell address. Partly, part of the first draft written by Hamilton apparently, um, uh, who shared his views on the subject though, um, And in that address, we find Washington claiming that morality, and hence good government, cannot be maintained without religion. Washington says, quote, "...of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness." these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Um, So very much, uh, maybe at his most... uh, pro-religious here Washington's way of promoting religion in general without turning America into a confessional state was of benefit to all religions according to Tocqueville when he wrote on this subject in the 1830s in the 1830s Tocqueville even saw the Roman Catholic Church of all churches flourishing in America which was a stark contrast to the state of the Catholic religion in France. One key advantage to American Catholic success, Tocqueville thought, was that religion and government officials were not tied up together. You have the first and second estate tied up together there. There was no possibility of a Cardinal Richelieu in America. When political leaders are rejected by the people of America, they do not at the same time reject their religious leaders. That's what Tocqueville thought was one of the keys, and maybe what had gone wrong in France, he thought. With government out of the way, the natural desire for God was able to do its work in the people of America, thought Tocqueville. That's not the usual Catholic arrangement, of course, up to this time. The usual Catholic arrangement is to have the confessional Catholic state. Um, France, before the French Revolution, you might say. What's interesting is, and, and now I'm going to get to the integralism thing finally. Uh, <laughs> when some French Catholics started reading, treating America as a model that ought to mold the church, the great Pope Leo Thirteenth rightly condemn that view as an American heresy. American exceptionalism went too far in this case. And Leo said basically, stop acting like America is God's gift to the world or to the church or something. Uh, To the French. To the French, yes. One small part of Leo's larger document on this topic condemning Americanism Longinqua Oceani, Across the Long Ocean, uh, contains a specific discussion of American church-state relations. And uh, I've got the quote in your handout. Um, Let's see. For the church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against violence by the common laws and the impartiality of the tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance. Yet though all this is true, like Tocqueville said, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is sought the type of the most desirable status of the church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for church and state to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. You're doing pretty well, Americans. Think you're hot but you're not. You're not you're not you're not the best. You aren't perfect in other words. You're doing pretty good, but you're not perfect. Some Catholics, including those who are part of the recent popular view called integralism, interpret Leo to be saying actually in that passage that our arrangement is totally illegitimate because it does not affirm the Catholic Church in our Constitution. <coughs> Potter Edmund Waldstein, a writer for the excellent integralist website called the Josius, he defines integralism in the following three sentences. Quote, Catholic integralism is a tradition of thought that rejects the liberal separation of politics from concern with the end of human life, holding that political rule must order man to his final goal. Since, however, man has both a temporal and eternal end, integralism holds that there are two powers that rule him, a temporal power and a spiritual power. And since man's temporal end is subordinated to his eternal end, and the temporal power must be subordinated to the spiritual power. From my perspective, this recent debate over integralism is remarkably similar to debates that have occurred in traditionalist Catholic circles just a few years ago over modernism and Americanism. The only difference I can really detect in a lot of these arguments, and I may be wrong in saying this, is that traditionalists were against Americanism, but now they're for integralism is much better rhetorically to be arguing for something rather than against something as our anti-federalists found out during the ratification debates. The integralists have a positive theory and a positive definition of what they want in the three sentences. The problem with the definition though to me is the word subordination. In what sense must the American government or other governments be subordinated to the Catholic Church is the question I would ask and it's also the question that Ed Faser asked the philosopher in his blog post about it there seems to be a lot of ambiguity about that word subordinated in some sense all Catholics must be integralists because the city of God does become come before the city of man and Christ is our King however Government and the state, the nation state, as they now exist, are actually a very new phenomenon. The nation state is a very new phenomenon. We are not living in the kingdom of Leo IX in France. And actually, if you go back to those old monarchies, they had parts of their governments that were had the church established in them, and then other parts that were not. Um, and th- this is described in a, a really interesting recent study, Andrew Willard Jones, Before Church and State. That's a book worth reading for sure. We therefore must read the most recent popes who are around during the time of the nation state, <coughs> such as Pope Leo Thirteenth, very carefully on this subject to learn what is and is not legitimate and then best in our new circumstances. According to philosopher Russell Hittinger, in an edited volume titled The Teachings of Modern Christianity, Pope Leo the Thirteenth was an anti-separationist. However, quote, in Leo's world, anti-separationism did not mean a state church. It meant rather a rich and proactive concordia in which each power recognizes the theological title to rule. Leo did not think civil authorities ought to be epistemologically blind about their place in the order of providence. And I'd like to actually discuss that in the Q&A if anybody wants to take that up. I'm, I'm very interested. in. That I mean, um, what might it mean that our government should not be blind uh, in that regard? I think that's. I thought. I think that's. It might. It might uh, yield something if we talked about that. Leo during his papacy. So that, that's the end of the quote from Hinger. Uh Russ Hinger, Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Leo during his papacy. This is me talking now. Leo, during his papacy, not only rejected as illegitimate the extremely French secular, excuse me, extremely secular French laws that were being proposed, which eventually were codified into the principle of laicite in 1905, but he also, at times, rejected establishment-friendly laws in some confessional Catholic states. He didn't just reject um, the super secular ones. Leo rejected some examples of both sides, we ought to remember. When it came to America's arrangement, Leo considered it to be decent, but not a perfect arrangement, as we saw in the Longinqua Oceani Oceani quotation. (laughs) Since Leo's time, the church seemingly has come around to appreciating the American arrangement more and more. John Courtney Murray, a very pro-American priest, undoubtedly had an impact on the writing of the Vatican II document, Dignitatis Humanae. That document, whose authoritativeness has been interestingly put into question uh, recently by scholar Thomas Pink, Clearly, but that that, that document clearly leans toward more of a separation of church and state in modern times, but it also does allow for confessional states as well. Unfortunately, I did not provide this quote in the handout. I gave you another quote from Dignitatis Humanae, but I wanted to read this one. It says that, in view of peculiar circumstances obtaining among peoples, special civil recognition is given to one religious community in the constitutional order of society is at the same time imperative that the right of all citizens and religious communities to religious freedom should be recognized and made effective in practice. So he's saying you might have a confessional state. When you have that, be sure you also have free exercise of or freedom of conscience, basically. Um, now, what peculiar circumstances would Pertain, I think that that means that there would be a majority of the citizens of the country would be Catholic. I think that's maybe what they have in mind there. So, does that mean that just no matter what, uh, the American uh, non confessional arrangement we have is illegitimate? I would not say that. I would say that our arrangement is legitimate and beneficial. Uh, but it's not the only legitimate option. So are the confessional states from the in the eyes of the church, as long as they allow the free exercise of religion. Ours is a good second best option, like Aristotle's middling regime described in the politics. One important idea I believe the integralists go wrong in is in criticizing the American Constitution for not affirming Catholicism in the text of our Constitution. I've heard an integralist declare and then retract the statement that the US Constitution is the first Constitution in the history of the world that does not affirm the divine in some way. My integralist friend forgot the US Constitution is also the first written Constitution in the history of the world. It's, it's the first one. We Americans invented the idea, along with the correlative idea of judicial review of laws written by a legislature. It's, so the British were actually guilty of cultural appropriation when, the, when their high court overturned the plan of parliament on Brexit earlier this year. For although there were precedents uh, that Chief Justice John Marshall followed in Marbury versus Madison, such as Koch's Bonham's case and examples of judicial review in some Virginia state courts. It, it was a novelty, judicial review. Earlier written documents that supported the rights of the people, such as the medieval Magna Carta, were not the source of authority for the king and his government as the U.S. Constitution is for our leaders. And hence, whether or not to write religion into the first written constitution was an interesting issue. How is Catholicism written into the Magna Carta is a question the integralists should explore. Believe it or not, George Washington was cognizant of these these facts. Everything I just said His effective promotion of Christian culture in America is the reason I think he's actually a key that integralists miss, and he might also be a key on the constitutional law side, too. When Washington was asked by a group of Presbyterian ministers why no affirmation of Christianity is contained in the U.S. Constitution, Washington kindly wrote them back, to tell them it would be their job, not the government's job, to promote religion in the new republic. Said Washington, quote, and this is in in your handout, to this consideration we ought to ascribe the absence of any regulation respecting religion from the madna charta of our country. To the guidance of the ministers of the gospel, this important object is perhaps more properly committed It will be your care to instruct the ignorant, to reclaim the devious, and in the progress of morality and science, to which our government will give every furtherance, we may confidently expect the advancement of true religion and the completion of our happiness. That's the American non-preferential support approach. It's very far from the French secularist laicite approach and it's also pretty far from the high wall of strict separation of church and state that we've adopted uh, in our constitutional law since the 50s um, Washington's neither of those um, I would actually argue that those are illegitimate for Catholics those two Um but these thir- all those views kind of get mixed together by the integralist and grouped under one heading of liberalism usually if we read leo the 13th closely um, we see that he appreciated the virtues of washington's approach to religion in Langinqua Lo- he too highlights washington as a model for America that works with Catholicism rather than against it. Quote from Leo in the handout. Precisely at the epoch when the American colonies having with Catholic aid, that's France, Catholic aid, uh, achieved liberty and independence, Lafayette, uh, coalesced into a constitutional republic, the ecclesiastical hierarchy was happily established amongst you. And at the very time when the popular suffrage placed the great Washington at the helm of the republic, the first bishop, I think that's Daniel Carroll, was set up, was set by the apostolic authority over the American church. The well-known friendship and familiar intercourse which subsisted between those two men, Carroll and Washington, seems to be an evidence that the United States ought to be conjoined in concord and amity with the Catholic Church, and not without cause, for without morality the state cannot endure, a truth which that illustrious citizen of yours, whom we have just mentioned, with a keenness of insight worthy of his genius and statesmanship, perceived and proclaimed. So that may or may not be a, like a paraphrase of Washington's farewell address, but it's pretty close. And his appreciation for, for Washington is evident. A more recent pope, John Paul II, had similar praise for Washington in his speech welcoming U.S. Ambassador Lindy Boggs in 1997. Quote The founding fathers of the United States asserted their claim to freedom and independence on the basis of certain self-evident truths about the human person. Truths which could be discerned in human nature, built into it by nature's God. Thus they meant to bring into being not just an independent territory, but a great experiment in what George Washington called ordered liberty. An experiment in which men and women would enjoy equality of rights and opportunities in the pursuit of happiness and in service of the common good. Reading the founding documents of the United States, one has to be impressed by the concept of freedom they enshrine, a freedom designed to enable people to fulfill their duties and responsibilities toward the family and toward the common good of the community. It would be truly a sad thing if the religious and moral convictions upon which the American experiment was founded could now somehow be considered a danger to free society such that those who would bring these convictions to bear upon your nation's public life would be denied a voice in debating and resolving issues of public policy. The original separation of church and state in the United States was certainly not an effort to ban all religious conviction from the public sphere, a kind of banishment of God from civil society. Indeed, the vast majority of Americans, regardless of their religious persuasion, are convinced that religious conviction and religiosity informed moral argument have a vital role in public life. That's from JP2 speech uh, welcoming Lindy Boggs, 1997. One final note, we should be aware that as we discuss what the Catholic Church's stance toward church and state ought to be today, the debate is of importance for non Catholics too. Non Catholic parties are also watching and listening to our theological debates, these debates that seem purely intramural. I've read a book recently by a secularist law professor, Stephen K. Green, who recently uh, cited Catholic anti modernist arguments and then argued that the anti-Catholic bias you see motivating Hugo Black and some others on the Supreme Court was therefore excusable. It's of course not excusable. Uh, not any less excusable than Hugo Black's Korematsu decision affirming FDR's internment of thousands of Japanese citizens during World War II. It do- <laughs> um There's no, uh, just because uh, one party might have been, uh, had views that you might disagree with, doesn't mean uh, that that excuses bias on the court. However, we should give our non Catholic audience no reason to misunderstand our commitment to religious freedom. This does not mean that we participants in the, the church-state discussions should alter what we say in order to accommodate the truth. The truth is the truth. It does mean, however, that Catholics should realize that our words and ideas have consequences, even just spoken just within the church. My hope is that a non-Catholic Americans will remember Washington and appreciate his principles. You have to realize with Washington on your side, it's like you hold the aces. I mean, for good reasons, Americans of all stripes are proud of their founding and not just on the 4th of July. It's a everlasting frustration to many progressives that the American public over and over throughout our history instinctively favors the founding fathers and their ideas conserving them as if they were almost sacred. As Lincoln said in his Lyceum address, reason cold calculating, unimpassioned reason must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. Let those materials be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and the laws, and that we improve to the last, that we remain free to the last, that we revered his name to the last, that during his long sleep we permitted no hostile foot to pass over or desecrate his resting place. Shall be that which to learn the last Trump shall awaken our Washington. It's The mysterious ending of an invocation of Washington at the end of Lincoln's uh, Lyceum. Uh, But that's just a a good example of Washington has this big place in the American psyche, and he is on the side of religious freedom and also not secularizing the public square. Um, And so I hope that integralists appreciate that. That's what I've got to say.